Dress, The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, The History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Hello, friends, and welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we answer you, our listeners' questions. And Cass, in light of the fact that last week's episode, not this week, but last week's full-length episode was Future Fit, A History of the Jumpsuit, I thought it only correct that we continue to explore this theme of futuristic fashions a little bit further. And as it happens, we also very recently got a listener request on this subject. Yeah, so listener Diamond D. Dew, a.k.a. DD, who wrote to us on Instagram, she wrote, I have a subject that I would love to hear a deep dive about in an upcoming episode. This has to do with the future of fashion seen in the past through cultures, art, etc., Since we are in 2020 and the only references are from futuristic films over the past 120 years. So many films had a quote-unquote view of the way fashions will become in 100 to 1,000 years from now. And, you know, they're somewhat inaccurate. So did cultures 150 to 2,000 years ago view futuristic fashion? This comes in lieu of the haute couture collections this week that were sort of all over the place in terms of, you know, future fashion Okay, thanks again for your podcast. Kiss, kiss. What a great question, Didi. And while I can't say that we are traveling back 2,000 years exactly for today's episode, (laughs) this inquiry did immediately remind me of this really delightful article that was published in Vogue in 1939. And Cass, if you're up for this, this introduction of this article calls for a little bit of role play. Are you down? (laughs) My inner actress is ready. Okay. All right, here we go. Hello? You've reached Vogue. Hello, this is the New York World's Fair. What is Vogue going to do about the fashions of tomorrow? We are sure we do not know. Today is full of exciting revivals and thrilling comebacks that we never even think of tomorrow. Shame on you. Tomorrow is the battle cry of today. Could you not create some fashion of the distant future? Here at Vogue, we never create. We observe and report, discover and point up. We leave designing to designers. Could you not ask the designers who create the fashions of tomorrow to give you their ideas about the fashions of a far tomorrow? (laughs) You're (laughs) cracking me up. We doubt whether they will want to do that. They live too much in the present. Their sensitivity is delicately attuned to the fleeting changes of the scenery of today. Their genius lies in the quick response to the fluctuations of contemporary taste, not in the forecasting of fashionable weather for thousands of years ahead. If neither Vogue nor the fashion designer knows about the fashion trend of the next century, who does? You do. You have gathered around you all of the leading industrial designers of this country, men who shape our destinies and our kitchen sink, streamline our telephones and our skyscrapers, men who brought surrealism to the department stores, and also the B-trilon to Paris sphere to Long Island. They know about all the problems, the dreams, the realities that future has in store for us. They are trained to think ahead. They know tomorrow like their own streamlined pockets. We will offer them the hospitality of our pages and let them have some fun with the clothes of tomorrow. (laughs) Well, that was fun. Yeah. 
And you guessed it, listeners, that is exactly what Vogue did. And just to be clear, if you didn't already know, that entire phone call we just had was a quote from Vogue magazine. Yes. (laughs) You know, we probably wouldn't credit men with all the inventions of the future, obviously. But so this phone call was actually part of the article in Vogue entitled Vogue Presents Fashions of the Future, which appeared in the February 1st, 1939 issue. So this was published looking forward and leading up to the grand opening of the New York World's Fair, which was a couple of months in the future. It actually opened on April 30th, 1939, and it ran until October 27th, 1940s at an enormous fairgrounds in Flushing, Queens, which took an entire three years to construct. Yes. And the theme of this particular World's Fair was the world of tomorrow. And according to the Museum of the City of New York, who has like a substantial kind of section on their website about the fair, they say, quote, the fair was divided into zones, each devoted to modern life, amusement, communications and business systems, community interests, food, government, medical and public health, production and distribution, science and education, and transportation. And they go on to say that states and countries exhibited their food and culture in very specific designated areas. 33 United States participated, and also Puerto Rico was represented, and all major countries participated except for China and Germany. And during the fair's second season in 1940, an American common replaced the Soviet Union's pavilion. So by the end of this fair's run, cast more than 45 million people from all around the globe had visited. So to say this is that this was, um, you know, a very much anticipated event. It's a little bit of an understatement. Yes, and this is, of course, why this article in Vogue makes perfect sense at this moment when there was so much buzz around predicting the future and what the future would bring. And what follows is a very lengthy spread, a whopping 20-plus pages in Vogue of, you know, we have gorgeous color photographs of the industrial designers' future fashions, um, their predictions, as well as their own personal statements on their designs. Nine individual designers were paired with New York fashion brands or department stores, custom design services to execute their ideas. And many of the designers also worked hand in hand with chemical companies who are working in the realm of textile science, which were developing cutting edge yet to be seen on the mass market fibers. For instance, when Egmont Ahrens, who most often designed kitchen and other electrical appliances, when he set his sight on designing for the bride of the year 2000, <laughs> he, he recalled um, recently in his own recent past attending a chemical show where he had seen glass fibers, which were intended for use in electrical insulation. So what he did was he convinced the Owens Corning Company to send some of their glass fibers over to the Onaganda Silk Company to be woven into a fashion fabric. And his bridal dress has a kind of like a very slight V-neck and it has like these puffed gigo sleeves. It very much clung to the torso and down over the hips and then it kind of like flowed out to the floor in an A-line. And about this, he said, quote, my costume for the glass bride was designed mainly to show the beauty of this new synthetic material. What appears to be silk in this costume is really glass. And what appears to be glass is something else again. And we're going to have to post like a whole story about this. Oh, yeah. You're going to have to post all of these images because I think imagining them is one thing, but seeing them in person is another. They're pretty fantastic. (laughs) 
So specifically the veil that the model wears was uh, not glass, but a crystal clear rubber called Pliofilm, which had been created by the Goodyear Rubber Company. And I'll be honest here, friends, it looks like she's wearing a clear plastic painting tarp <laughs> for a veil. It, it does. It does. It's, it's a little kitschy. It's a little yeah. cheesy. You know, so futuristic then, but commonplace material for us today, as are her accessories, her jewelry and a diadem were made from the chemical company DuPont's brand spanking new material, Lucite, which also comprised the heels of her stacked wedge shoes. And I'm sure all of you listeners can imagine this perfectly because Lucite jewelry is quite common on the marketplace today. Uh, So chalk one up for Mr. Aaron's and his future fashion predictions. Yes, he totally hit this one out of the park cast because, well, I might not have been a bride at the time. I actually wore a pair of shoes almost identical to the ones that accompany his illustrations of the shoes. Um, These kind of strappy wedges with lucite heels to a New Year's Eve party in 2001. So wow. that's just one year in the future from what he was predicting. So, and and there are actually more of these predictions come true in this article and the, the accompanying photo essay. So I thought that we could do a little bit of a rundown on a few of both the hits and also the misses. It will come as no surprise to our regular listeners that the topic of pants versus skirts was on many of these designers' minds. So designer George Sakier declared skirts irrelevant by the year 2000 as women would, quote, have the freedom of time and space. She will move in a world of vast horizons. She will freely invade the air in planes for transport, gliders for sport, and parachutes for emergency. You know, although perhaps George did not foresee men adopting skirts, but he was quite accurate (laughs) about women adopting pants. For sure. And also automobile, boat, and airplane designer Raymond Lowy, he agreed with Sekier on the matter of travel when he said, quote, in the future, people will travel much more. They will cover greater distances at higher speeds than at present. A New York businesswoman, for instance, may decide on a hurried trip to California when traveling time has been reduced to, say, six or seven hours, and she will want to travel light and take with her only a minimum of luggage. Instead of taking along both a day and dinner dress, she may wear a garment that readily can be converted into one or the other. So Loie's black, long sleeve strong-shouldered wool dress has an A-line skirt that hits just below the knee, and it's paired with a coral belt and an oversized matching clutch in the in the editorial spread. But what we haven't yet mentioned, listeners, is that Vogue did a whole video piece which accompanied this editorial shoot with Pathé, which created these little newsreels which were frequently shown before movies. It's indeed online now, and it goes without saying that we will post the link in the show notes in the episode description so you can check out these videos because they're amazing. Yeah, they're very, very fun. And actually in the video, it's demonstrated as to how the sleeves of this dress unzip vertically along the outer arm. And then those panels kind of are pulled back. Um, They're still attached onto the arm, but they're pulled back and then clipped to the collar. So this now makes the dress not only sleeveless, but two-toned because the inside of the sleeves had been lined in a contrasting fabric. So it, it looks like a whole different dress, basically. 
Yeah. And while that might not be exactly a hot quote unquote trend today, it's certainly plausible that it could be. But perhaps even more plausible was Loewy's prediction that we would travel more and even for a cross-country trip, pack just a small carry-on. And indeed, of course, now that flight from New York City to Los Angeles is exactly that April. It's six hours. If you leave early enough, you can actually fly between New York and Los Angeles, take a meeting or two, and return home the same day. Although I wouldn't recommend it. No, no, no. It's really hard. I've actually done it. Not in exactly the same day. I've gone been there and then come back the next day. It's rough, but, um, and, and also we have to, if it's rough now, we also have to remember that at this time in 1939, when this article was published, commercial air travel just was not mainstream. So Pan Am, which was a really early American passenger airline, wasn't even founded until 1927. And so, you know, for most people traveling to visit family or for leisure by a plane, it wasn't something that really even remotely entered their realm of possibilities until the 1950s or even maybe the 1960s. So in 1939, traveling to California for a day and then popping back was something really radical. It was unheard of, basically. And besides travel, another commonality between many of these designers had to do with air conditioning. Okay. We have to talk about this for a second, (laughs) because if you read this article, you're going to be like scratching your head thinking, why is everyone so obsessed with air conditioning? It's, It's like all they talk about in this article, air conditioning this and air conditioning that. So you're going to hear a lot more about this on this point. Well, and for good reason, because the first room air conditioners were not invented until 1931. And eight years later in 1939, they were still prohibitively expensive. I mean, they're still pretty expensive today. But I mean, back then, a window unit for a single room at that time would be approximately $8,000. So not exactly what we would pay today for the same thing. So it's no wonder that it was on the mind of designers Raymond Lowy and Joseph B. Platt, who both thought that advances in textile science would actually allow for the self-heating and cooling of garments. Platt's design for an oversized camel-colored wool coat was, quote, hypothetically woven with a fine wire that carries heat, end quote. And it could be either either battery-powered or plugged into one's car. Yes, and today this sort of wearable technology is so ubiquitous that one can simply wander into a Walmart and buy a battery-powered heated coat for like $100, $150. And that's not to mention even more advanced textiles like Levi's and Google's um, collaboration project Jacquard to develop smart denim, which actually allows you to control your Bluetooth-connected cell phone or your headphones, like by touching a certain (laughs) like area on your denim jacket. It's very cool. And then just this month, Cass, H&M actually announced their wearable love project. um, And they're developing denim jackets that have flexible sensors inside of them and they can mimic the feeling of being touched. So how this works is via an app, the wearer's friends and family can actually trigger the jacket to give the wearer a hug from afar. You know, and, and, and this is really fascinating. It just just launched, uh, I think, in August. Um, and I think that, you know, this is something that many of us might be into because we're all craving a little love from afar in this age of <laughs> coronavirus and social distancing. Huh? <gasps> I don't know. I find this equal parts creepy and heartwarming because (laughs) 
I'm not sure if I'm ready for phantom hugs to replace the real deal, but I'll have to try it. I'll let you know. And of course, if any of our listeners have tried any of this wearable technology, please write to us and let us know because I'm super, I mean, we're both fascinated by it and and really interested in it. Um, It's definitely the future. Uh, so, okay, we've we've now discussed some of the hits and some of the things that have really come true, but maybe we should discuss some of the misses here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this one coming back once again to the topic of air conditioning. So designer Donald Desky declares, quote, tomorrow's women live in an air-conditioned universe. She will wake up in an air-conditioned apartment, take an air-conditioned car, pneumatic tube, or stratosphere plane to an air-conditioned office in a conditioned city. His fellow designer, Walter Dorwin Teague, agreed, and he stated, quote, with universal heating and air conditioning, clothing will not be expected to keep women warm or cool. Most women will have beautiful bodies, and at the present trend, nudity will continue at an accelerated pace. Okay, so here, friends, (laughs) is where we start to wander into a little bit of some questionable ways of thinking, um, because it seems that many of these designers, while continuing to obsess about air conditioning, also predict entirely sheer clothing, which put the body entirely on full view. Yeah, you you had you had some a layer of chiffon on, but that was about it. And and Desky again here says, "quote Medical science will have made her body perfect with a capital P. She'll never know obesity, emaciation." colds in the head, superfluous hair, or a bad complexion. Thanks to a controlled diet, controlled basal metabolism, her height will be increased, her eyelashes lengthened with some X hormone, end quote. Jeez, I wonder if a man wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) And if that smacks of both sexism, but also eugenics, dress listeners, that's because it is, I mean... Designer Lowy even uses this term. He says, quote, various motion picture films predicting the life of tomorrow have shown men and women in various scanty and often attractive looking attire. This is all very well because the individuals are usually young and good looking. Unfortunately, this type of clothing doesn't seem adapted to contemporary individuals, but eugenic selection may bring generations so aesthetically correct that such clothes will be in order end quote. Yes. So for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with this term eugenics, it basically is this idea of the improvement of the human race via selective and sometimes even forced reproduction. So eugenic theory was really at its height of popularity during the 1930s and the 1940s. The Chicago World's Fair in 1933, which ended in 1934, even actually had a whole exhibition on eugenics called Pedigree Study in Man. And it really wasn't until the Nazi Party's horrifying experiments in eugenics, um, when that came to light, what they were doing during World War II, that this kind of more popular interest in eugenics kind of began to wane and people saw how this was definitely problematic. So um, that, that this is not a path we shall wander down further today. Um, but let's just say chalk up a, a miss for near nudity in the year 2000 via perfect bodies born of eugenics. 
Yeah. So on a lighter note, it does seem that many of these designers did have a win in predicting various devices, which in one fashion or the other predict the emergence of cell phones. So Gilbert Rhodes prediction that men would adopt solo suits, aka jumpsuits, which were paired with plexiglass vests, which supported the transmitter for a two-way telephone and a belt, which quote, contains the incredibly compact two-way radio set and control switches for it. And for the Omega waves that heat and cool, of course, the air-conditioned solo suit. (laughs) (laughs) See, I told you guys, you thought I was kidding when I was going to say they're all obsessed with air conditioning. Obsessed, totally obsessed. (laughs) And we, of course, cannot forget the antenna hat that the gents of the future would wear. It's sculpted like a crown. It, quote, snatches radio and omega waves out of the air, end quote, in part to the power of the color-changing features of the solo suit. So, quote, the color of the garment can be controlled by varying the plates of the beryllium copper wire. The gentleman, for example, may start to the office in a rich gunmetal solo suit, drab in color, but scintillating with life. In the afternoon, there is a director's meeting, so he changes to a deep maroon. And for dinner, the change is made to a jiffy turquoise. Yes. Oh, and if only. I mean, that would be fabulous. <laughs> it would, would be love, fabulous. <laughs> I would love that. Um, so, so while this still seems a little bit futuristic to us today, it's not entirely that far off because, um, Cass, how many evening gowns have we seen on the red carpet at the Met Ball in recent years that light up? And, and not to mention also the color-shifting monogram bag, which Virgil Abloh designed for Louis Vuitton in 2019. We've actually talked about it very briefly on the show in the past, but the bag has fiber optic lights inside that allow the LV monograms to change color and and they can the colors almost like shift and swirl around the bag in real time. It's it's very cool. Um, W Magazine did like a whole feature on it if you guys just want to give that a little Google search. Yeah, I mean, give it 80 years, April, and some things, some of these predictions did come true. I mean, these designers, some of them foresaw the development of wearable technologies and the completely novel materials featured in this photo essay are familiar to most of us today. Vogue readers in 1939 had never dreamed of plexiglass, cellophane, or lucite, and air conditioning seemed to be a dream of dreams. But here we are, friends, Welcome to the future generations past longed for. Yes. So, Didi, I hope this answers your query. And I'd also just like to give Didi's tour company a bit of a shout out. The Didi stands for Diamond Didi, which is Didi's drag name. And she is an officially licensed NYC tour guide who runs Drag Queen Tours, which offers walking tours of the history of drag in New York City. So hit her up if you are coming to visit in the future and you're interested. You can actually find her on Instagram at Didi underscore drag queen tours and her website which is dqtours.com super fun so fun and thank you for listening and reaching out dd speaking of instagram of course you can reach us there as well if you'd like to submit a question for a future fashion history mystery at dressed underscore podcast is where we post images to accompany each week's episode you can also write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the future not yet residing in your closet next time (laughs) you get dressed. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday for a full-length episode. 
Hi. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.